as Jeff said, uh, Jim and Susie Horn, uh, they'll be here Wednesday. They're in country, they're home from Africa. And he had contacted me and I told him uh, he could certainly come on Wednesday. So our life groups, our adults and our teenage life groups are meeting here Wednesday night at 6.30 for uh, Jim and Susie to give their report. Um, we've been supporting as a church, we've been supporting Jim and Susie for a long time. In fact, I was introduced to, to Jim when this church had just begun. We were in the storefront <clears throat> over on Blanding and a, and a business man who was a friend of mine uh, and came to the church, uh, attended during the storefront, said, I want you to meet a missionary that I've been supporting for a long time. And Jim sat down and shared with me the ministry and showed me what they were doing. And Jim was probably, Jim and Hope for the World were the two organizations that we first started to support as a church uh, among all of our missionaries. And now God's blessed us to be able to support people all over the world. But the point is, Jim and Susie have been, been in that ministry for a long time, since 1975. And uh, the things that, that he does there that really grabs my attention early on that God's led them to do is, yes, they're sharing the gospel, but they've laid a foundation there in Mombasa and Kenya and I've been to Mombasa a couple of times. That street with the giant tusk across it, I've stood right there uh, more than once. And that in, in poverty and, and need in that country is great. Not a wealthy country, as many of the countries in Africa are uh, poverty-ridden. And what they've done is they've gone in with the gospel, and they're also meeting people's needs. Those children, the 1,000 students that are in their school system, and I'm sure Jim will share all that with you, those, those thousand plus students that are in their various schools are not only receiving an education that will serve them the rest of their lives, but they're receiving the gospel and, and they get saved and they go out into society as children of God with an education that make a difference in that country. Same thing, uh, one of the really foundational things that they do there that, that I think is so important is they go out into the different towns and when they win men and women to Jesus, they put them in their seminary, the men who are called into the ministry, and they teach them the Bible, and they actually graduate with a seminary degree. And then they go back and they pastor those churches in the villages and hometowns where they came from. And they have a unique ability because they are of that dialect, and they are of those people in that town, and, 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 they, and they pastor churches there. So a very worthy ministry, and uh, I'm thankful they are home and will spend some time with us uh, Wednesday evening. So I, I hope that you will... Uh, make plans to be here and encourage them as they report. Well, take your Bibles this evening, and let's continue our look at the ministry of Christ, and we'll be in Luke chapter 5 tonight, Luke chapter 5. And what I want to spend just a few minutes together tonight in our time, and think about when Jesus began to call his disciples. Now, again, if you've been here for this study, we're not doing it chronological. If I were, I would have started with the baptism of Jesus and moved forward, but Really what I'm doing is moving around a little bit and picking different parts of his ministry for us to look at. And this evening, when Jesus began to call his disciples, I called it building his team. Uh, Jesus handpicked some men to be his inner circle, if you will. Well, Peter, James, and John were the most inner circle, but men who would, would encircle him. And, and think about these men that were his disciples and became the apostles. These men, for the most part, were his closest friends on earth. They were, they, they were his, his confidants. They were those who prayed with him and for him and, and helped him 
uh, as he did the ministry, and Jesus poured into their lives, and he taught them uh, in a very personal way. And they had the incredible privilege to personally watch Jesus minister, to watch and listen to him. Uh, what, a, what an incredible privilege that must have been. I mean, we read the Bible, and the Holy Spirit teaches us, but to hear it from the lips of Jesus uh, is something I look forward to when we get to heaven, to hear him teach and, and minister to us. But the fact is these, these men were his closest friends, and there were two things about these men, really three things that I would have you notice, all of them. And we're only going to really look at Peter, and we might have time to get to Matthew, but we're going to look at Peter. Three things happened in the life of these men. And the first was the call. Jesus uh, taught, and they heard Jesus. And when these men surrendered to the ministry to follow Jesus, it wasn't the first time they had heard Jesus speak. They had, they had seen his ministry. Take Peter, for example. Peter was obviously around Capernaum when Jesus was teaching in the synagogue and the man was demon possessed and you remember we we studied that passage and Jesus cast a demon out and right after he goes to Peter's house and Peter's mother-in-law had a fever and he healed her so Peter heard Jesus teach he saw Jesus do miracles so Peter was very familiar with who Jesus was and and listened to him but there came a time when God put a call on Peter's life, when Jesus put a call on Peter's life, and, he, and you're going to see tonight, he says specifically to him, come follow me. And what that meant was forsake everything else and come follow me. Forsake the things of this world and come follow me and do what I ask you to do. So Peter was faced with, a, with the call of Jesus on his life. And I would make the comparison for us. If you're saved, you're saved because it was a call on your life. Jesus called you to the faith. The Holy Spirit convicted you and called you to the faith. In a similar way, they were called. Secondly, they were called into a fellowship with Jesus. And that's wonderful because when Jesus called them to be his disciples and then eventually called them into full-time ministry, they were called to the closest kind of fellowship with Jesus, to walk with him, to do ministry with him, and to bring honor and glory to him. And so in a similar way, we are called into the faith by the power of the Holy Spirit we surrender, we, we humble ourselves, and we ask Jesus to save us. And when we do, we enter the most intimate of fellowships and relationships with Christ. And so as a child of God, you have a call, and you have fellowship with Jesus. And then finally, Peter was called, and so were the others, to surrender all. Can I, can I remind us tonight that serving Jesus is, is not a part-time thing? It's a, it's a full-time thing. You say, well, pastor, I'm not into full-time ministry. Well, yes, you are. You're not in vocational ministry, but you are in full-time ministry. If you're saved, if you're a child of God, you're in full-time. In fact, I would say you're either in full-time or you're not in at all. How about that? You see, these fellows were called to full-time vocational ministry, much as a pastor today or someone who's on staff. I mean, there came a time in my life when God made it clear that this is what he wanted me to do, as, as a ministry and as my vocation, to be the thing that I would do, to be a pastor. Not everyone's called into the ministry full-time vocationally, but wherever you run in life, your circle of people, you're in full-time ministry among that circle. You're a full-time witness. You're a full-time testimony. You're a full-time source of the gospel. That circle you run in, you're in full-time ministry. So what we see in the lives of these men, and Peter in this passage in particular, is not unlike what we experience in being saved, the call of God, fellowship with him, and into ministry to serve him with our lives. So let's look at what happened to Peter beginning in the first three verses 
from Luke chapter 5. The Bible says, So it was as the multitude pressed about him to hear the word of God, that he stood by the lake of Gennesaret, which is the Sea of Galilee, and saw two boats standing by the lake. But the fishermen had gone from them and were washing their nets. Then he got into one of the boats, which was Simon's, that belonged to Peter, and asked him to put out a little from the shore or from the land. And he sat down and taught the multitudes from the boat. Well, the first thing I want us to look at here in this passage is very important. When Jesus arrived and, and was on the seashore, it says that the multitude pressed about around him for what? What were they looking for? To hear him teach. Now, we might think, well, Jesus did great miracles and people flocked around Jesus for the miracles. No, listen. The, the miracles generated curiosity. And people would come out of curiosity to see what great thing he might do in addition. But the people who really wanted to know who Jesus was came to hear him teach. They came to hear what he had to say. They came to hear his, his teaching and the clarity of the law that he brought. And so Jesus, in this scenario, he walks along the seashore. They've gathered around him. And listen to me, it was his pattern. It was the, the, the major function of his pattern of his life, the focus of his life, not just to do miracles, but to teach, to say who he was, to teach the law. And, and you say, well, why was this, the teaching such a priority? Because, listen, it is the word of God that changes people's lives, not the miracles. The miracles are wonderful. The miracles were a ministry. The miracles were an expression of compassion. The, the miracles opened the door many times for people to pay attention because Jesus did something great. But the teaching, the teaching was the focus of his ministry. Now, I would suggest to you tonight, and I may very well be in the minority of pastors who feel this way. I don't know because this is the only church I ever go to on a majority of my time. But I would think, as I've looked around at the church of the 21st century, particularly in Western culture in the United States, there's a lot of question about, about church today, about how should church be and what should pastors do and how should preaching be and what should be services. Well, I think, biblically, if we just look at the model of Jesus, we get our answer. Jesus majored on teaching all the time. And I would suggest to you, it is my conviction and the conviction of, of the leadership of this church, and I believe your conviction as well, that the pattern of preaching that you find in the Bible is one of expositional teaching. You say, well, Pastor, what is, what is expositional teaching? Well, it is, it is reading a passage of Scripture as Jesus stood in the synagogue and opened up the scroll and read out of Isaiah. And then it is explaining the passage of Scripture in its meaning, in its context, and in its immediate context, and in, in its historical context. It's explaining the meaning, and then it is making application to life. And when that kind of teaching happens, God the Holy Spirit changes people on the inside. Now watch this. When a person gets changed on the inside, then they act different on the outside. See, sometimes as churches, what we do is we get all fascinated with, we want you to act right. We want you to do right. And we want you to do all these things. And, and sometimes churches will, in a legalistic way, put pressure on you on the outside. That will never work because people are hard-headed. They won't do that, okay? But you know what will work? 
if we take the word of God and we say, look, this is what God said, and this is what he meant when he said it, and this is what it meant for you and me, then the Holy Spirit will touch people and people on the inside will get convicted and they'll surrender and they'll say, God, you're right and I'm wrong and I want to be like Jesus. And then the Holy Spirit will go to work to make them look like Jesus. So listen, teaching, teaching is what the church needs today. Teaching of God's word. Now, some people would say, and listen, I've run in these circles in seminary and I've sat with pastors and they've argued over what kind of preaching the church would have today. I had a fellow, no kidding, I had a guy stand right out there between these two buildings and look at me one day after coming here for a while, and he said, you can never sustain a church preaching the way you preach. I said, thanks for the vote of confidence. I appreciate that. And he said, I don't mean to be mean. He said, but what I'm saying is you got to do topical stuff, and you have to do stuff that interests people. And I said, listen, I think people who love Jesus are interested in the Bible. What do you think? And if they're interested in, in the Bible and they're saved, then they're interested in Jesus. And I said, so I could probably pretty much keep them happy if I talk about Jesus a lot. What do you think? That's my point. We don't need to sell hot dogs. We don't need to give them away or honey buns or any of that kind of stuff. Now, I like honey buns with butter on it in the microwave. That's good, okay? But if, if that's why you get a bunch of – Haiti and Hunter like them now too. If that's why – they heard me say that one time, went right home and got a honey bun and put it in the microwave. But understand this, dear ones. If we, if we try to build a ministry on anything but the Word of God, on teaching it like Jesus did, then you've got to constantly be inventing a new way to keep people happy. You've got to constantly be trying to figure out a way to be exciting or be witty or something to get people to want to come. And I'm just not that smart. I'm just not, I just can't do that. But you know what we can do? We can say what God said, and we can prayerfully encourage people to do what God said. And when we do what God said and we understand what God said, it makes us all different. It makes us more like Jesus. And here's what I wrote down about this. The church today needs more than anything, more than anything, a line upon line, verse upon verse, principle upon principle, doctrine upon doctrine, explanation of what it means to life and what it means to be saved and how to live it out. And what the church does not need today is preachers who major on being witty or, or major on being funny or major on being, uh, being a shock value. Man, I have, heard, I have heard ministry people get up and say some of the craziest things you've ever heard simply because they want a headline, because they, wanna, they want somebody to say, wow, did you hear what he or she said? Well, no, and I don't want to, okay? But they want, to, they want to get the shock value. We don't need preachers who major on emotions. We don't need preachers who major on being new and creative. I'm going to tell you something about the Bible nobody's ever seen before. Probably not, okay? But, but that's the major. That's the hook. That's the thing. And we certainly don't need preachers in the church today who try to figure out what the world wants to hear and give it to them. That's not what we need. You know what we need? We need to preach like Jesus preached. We need to do what he did. And I know I'm spending a lot of time on this, but it's so vital to the health of the church. I, I believe this to be true, and I'm no church planting guru, no church growth guru. I don't claim to be, I never wrote any books about it, none of that stuff. But I do watch, and I do listen to people. And being a pastor, I get to sit with other preachers and listen to them and, and, and talk with church planning guys and listen. You know, I listen to this stuff. 
in churches many times, churches that are struggling, that people are leaving and they're folding up. There's lots of reasons for that, and, and, and this isn't a blanket statement. But this is my own estimation. Many times it's because they got away from what they ought to be doing. That's just my estimation. It's because they got away from talking about Jesus, and they got away from teaching the Bible, and they got away from ministering to people, and they got all caught up in all kinds of other stuff. Okay, And Satan, Satan loves to do that. Satan loves to get us off track and get us doing other things. Here's, here's my point about all this, and we'll get to Peter. The crowd of people came to a seashore and stood out there while Jesus sat in a boat. Why? Because they wanted to hear him teach. They wanted to hear him teach. People who are saved, listen, people who are saved, they'll want to come hear about Jesus. That's just a fact. They'll want to come hear. So that's what preachers ought to be doing. One last, one last point on that. Remember after Jesus rose from the dead, Peter had denied him three times, and Peter had gone back to fishing. And Jesus went down to the seashore and had a meeting with Peter to restore him. You remember the question that Jesus asked Peter? Asking the same question three times. Do you love me? Peter, do you love me? And boy, I, I bet Peter was squirming because remember Peter said, I'll never deny you. You know, I'll die for you. And then he denied him three times. And now Jesus sitting by the seashore over the fire eating the fish going, Peter, do you love me? Lord, you know I love you. If you love me, feed my sheep. Peter, do you love me? Lord, I love you. Feed my lambs. Peter, do you love me? By the third time, Peter's like, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Then Peter, feed my sheep. You notice what Jesus told him to do three times. Not do anything else but what? If you love me, feed my sheep. We're God's sheep. You're God's sheep. And Jesus said, feed them. Do what I did. Feed them. So it's very important, this very first scene, that Jesus is by the seashore teaching now, Jesus is, is in the boat with Peter, sitting there, right? They, they cast off from the shore. And who's sitting in the boat with Jesus listening to the message? Peter. All right, Peter's in there. He's sitting there with Jesus. He's there. Now, sitting in the boat, when the, when the sermon's over, what does Jesus tell Peter to do? Look at verses 4 and 5. When he had stopped speaking, he said to Simon, launch out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. Now, verse 5. But Simon Peter, Simon Peter answered and said to him, Master, we have toiled all night and caught nothing. Nevertheless, at your word, I'll let down the net. I wrote in my notes, let's go fishing. Peter is a professional fisherman, was a professional fisherman. His buddies in the business, they owned a fishing business, were James and John. Now, Peter had a boat, and apparently James and John had a boat because they were brothers. And those Two, at least with two boats, and maybe more, we don't know, they had a fishing business on the Sea of Galilee. Now, I don't know how many of you have been there, but I have been to the Sea of Galilee, and there's not a lot of fishing and not a lot of industry there now. You can see the ruins where the buildings used to be, and, and it, but at the time of the first century, there was booming, booming uh, business around the Sea of Galilee, houses, lots of people, uh, and the ruins are there now. But Peter and James and John were all in the fishing business. Now, as professional fishermen, they knew that the time to fish on the Sea of Galilee was at nighttime when the fish would be dark and the fish would be closer to the shore. They would put their nets out and they would catch the fish. And then when the sun come up during the day, the sun comes out, and if any of you are fishermen, 
I like to fish. I don't get to do it much. When the sun's up in the middle of the day and it's hot and the light's shining out in the water, the fish go deeper. Why? To get away from the light and hide in the darkness. Same principle on the Sea of Galilee. So Jesus gets done teaching and he says to, uh, he says to Peter, let's go out there in the deep and I want you to throw the net out. Now, we know from verse 4 that Peter right away, and in verse 5, Peter right away says, well, Lord, we fished all night. Nothing worse, I'm going to tell you, there's nothing worse for a fisherman to say, I went fishing and I didn't catch nothing. That's embarrassing, okay? I don't care if you catch a mudfish, at least you can say you caught something, right? Peter, a professional fisherman, said we fished all night, and he wouldn't catch anything. Now, I'm going to tell you, that's pretty amazing in itself. Because there's a lot of fish in the Sea of Galilee. I stood on the shore, and there's fish everywhere. The Sea of Galilee, the Jordan River ran through it. There's a lot of fish in that body of water. 12 miles long, 8 miles wide in the middle. There's a lot of fish in that, in that lake. And for them to fish all night and not catch anything, it's kind of suspicious. It don't say so here. It's kind of suspicious, all right? But Peter, here's the situation. Him and his buddies, James and John, they fished all night. They didn't catch nothing. Now they're done for the day. Their work day's over. They're washing their nets. They're putting stuff away. And when Jesus says to Peter, let's go fishing, I'm sure he's thinking in his head, I've been up all night. I'm tired. I've already washed the net. I've already mended it. I've already put it away. I'm the professional fisherman here, and I didn't catch nothing all night. Why in the world? Would I want to go out in the deep, which we never fish in the deep, why would I want to go out in the deep and throw the net over the side? Now, Peter may have been suffering from what I call unmet expectations, okay? As a professional fisherman, he expected to catch fish. Not only did he not catch any fish, but now he's ticked off about it, all right? He's irritated about it. I fished all night, and I didn't catch any fish. And I want to make a quick application of that. Sometimes in the ministry, it's like fishing. Sometimes in the ministry, we have these expectations that we set up, don't we? I.e., we're going to start a church, and in five years, it's going to be the biggest church in Orangeburg. That was not my expectation, but we might, we might think that way, right? We might get together, man, we're going to start a church, and God's going to do great things, and we're going to change the world. God may just very well choose to use you to do that. But he might not. In fact, God's plan for us might be far different from our plan for us. Everybody follow me? In other words, my expectation might be my expectation that I set up without asking God. How about that? And if I didn't ask God what my expectation should be, then I shouldn't be discouraged when I don't get what I think I ought to get and I get what God gave me. Everybody following all that? Peter had an expectation to go fishing and catch a bunch of fish. In fact, he labored all night to catch fish, and he didn't catch any fish. Sometimes in a certain ministry, we labor hard, don't we? Man, we labor. We get in there, both elbows, hands, everything. Man, we're in there, and we're working hard. And at the end of laboring in the ministry, we stand back and we look and we say, God, I labored really hard, and I didn't catch any fish. Or I labored really hard, and the things that I thought was going to happen didn't happen, and, and it didn't really turn out well, and I don't... I don't feel like I was successful. Here's a good word of encouragement, okay? 
God's way is always successful. Not our way, God's way. And we can't see the end of the thing yet. Meaning we might labor right now, and it doesn't look like anything happened. But what if when we die in the next generation, what we did explodes? You follow me? Because it ain't about us. It ain't about us and our expectations about God. i give you one good biblical example. Noah. Now, Noah loved God, and he's minding his own business, right? Whatever Noah did before God called him to build a boat, I don't know what he did. Farm, I don't know what he did. Maybe he's a farmer, you know, goat herder. I don't know what he did. But one day, God shows up at Noah's house and says, I got a job for you. I'm going to flood the world, and you need to build an ark, a boat, uh, because I'm going to flood the world. And Noah believed God. He was a righteous man. And he began to build that boat in his backyard. It took him 120 years to build this thing because he built it by hand. And Noah preached for 120 years. You know what he preached? It's going to flood. And God's going to kill everybody. And if you want to live, you're going to get in this boat. Kind of like the gospel, isn't it? Judgment's coming. If you want to get saved, you better come to Jesus now because the judgment's coming. Noah. The rain's coming, and everybody would go, what rain? Because it ain't never rained yet. And they'll go, it's going to rain, and it's going to flood. If you want to live, get in the boat. How many people got saved in Noah's day? How about zero? His family, that's it. He didn't reach anybody outside of his family. Him, his wife, his boys, and their wives, that's it. Preached for 120 years with no convert. How would you feel about that? Say, Pastor, I shared the gospel with 10 people. Nobody got saved. Big deal. You ain't caught up with Noah yet. Noah preached for 120 years and nothing happened. But you know what God did? God used Noah to preserve the entire human race and carried him into another generation. My point is this. Peter was discouraged. And Peter was irritated. You can tell in his answer. Peter was irritated because what he thought ought to happen didn't happen. Let us not get caught up in that trap, okay? Here's the key. Do what God tells you to do. Do it all your heart, soul, mind, and strength so as honor him, and let God worry about the results, okay? Let God worry about what happens because your responsibility and my responsibility is one thing, be obedient. Do what he says, and then God will take care of the rest of it. So first thing is Peter had some unmet expectations. Second thing here is this. Have you ever noticed that God's way was always different from man's way? I mean, Peter and the fishermen who are professionals been fishing that lake all their life, fish during the night, and they fish close to the shore where it's shallow. Jesus gets in the boat and says, no, nah, we're going to change that all up. I want you to get out there in the deep water, and we're going to do it in broad daylight. Now, Peter's initial resistance, as I said, I think was because he was already tired, he was already washing the net, I don't want to go out there again. But God's way is always different. And here's another thing. God's way always seems foolish to man, doesn't it? It always seemed like the wrong thing to do. Jesus said, get out there and put the net down in the deep water. You know, the gospel's the same way. The world thinks the gospel's foolishness, don't they? I was looking up some stuff this week for something else I was writing. And... Uh, I was looking at some, some famous atheists in the history. 
men who think they're so smart who deny the existence of God. And I read for a few minutes some of their quotes, some of the things they were saying. And uh, being a Christian and knowing Jesus, my initial thought, what fools, what fools. But no, listen, the world, the world thinks they're so intelligent. And the world thinks they're so smart. But no, they actually make themselves fools. And God's way seems foolish to them. Listen to what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 1, 18 to 21. Listen to this. For the message, the gospel of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. You see, we get it. Why? Because the Holy Spirit helps us get it. The world is foolishness to them. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the gospel preached to save those who believe. Oh, God's way is always different than man's way. But God's way is always the right way. I like Peter's answer here. Even though he didn't understand, even though he didn't really want to do it, he said, nevertheless, Lord, if you tell me to drop it in the deep water, that's where we're going. What a great answer. I like that. Peter's irritated, unmet expectations. He don't want to do it. He's fished all night. He's tired. And Jesus said, go out here and drop the net one more time in the deep water. Here's an important lesson. How many Christians have quit one effort to many, one effort short of success. How many Christians have been discouraged because of unmet expectations and they quit the ministry, they quit doing what God called them to do, they quit singing, they quit teaching, they quit doing whatever, when if they would have just hung in there and did what Jesus told them to do, they would have realized all that they really wanted. Peter, give him credit, he said, Lord, nevertheless, at your command I will. Now let's look at what happened. Great story. Look at verse 6. And when they had done this, went out into deep water, threw the net over. They caught a great number of fish, and their net was breaking. So they signaled the men in Peter's boat. Peter, they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats so that they began to sink. And when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished, were amazed at the catch of fish which they had taken. And so also were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on you will, be, you will catch men or you will be a fisher of men. So when they had brought their boats to land, they forsook all and followed him. What a fantastic story. Let me give it some, some, some substance and then we'll wrap it up. Peter does what Jesus tells him to do. He goes out there and he throws the net over. Now, it appears here that he threw the net into a shoal of fish. Now, a school of fish and a shoal of fish are two different things. A school of fish is usually one species of fish who are together swimming around. We call it a school of fish. A shoal of fish is just a large gathering of fish of various kinds. They all happen to be in one area. There have been records re recorded instances of shoals as big as an acre, meaning fish just all in one area eating or whatever they're doing. And so apparently what Jesus led Peter to do was go into the deep where the shoal of fish would be because it's in deeper water. 
and throw his net out in the exact right spot to catch all these fish. Now, it happened one of two ways, and, and it's a miracle either way, but it happened one of two ways. Either Jesus, being God, knew where the shoal of fish was at and told Peter to go there, and, and you can almost see it. Peter, take your boat out here and drop the net right there. I mean, it could have, been, could have been like that, and Jesus knew where the fish were at. Or it could have been that being God, and since he's in charge of all creation and all the, all the critters in the world obey and do what he says, Jesus could have just as easily commanded all them fish to come to one spot and told Peter, basically, I got all the fish waiting on you to throw the net over right here. Either way, it's a miracle. Either way, Jesus is in command of creation, and he, he tells Peter where to put the net. Now, how much... How many fish did Peter catch? Again, put it in contrast with I fished all night and I caught none. Now he's caught a bunch at the command of Jesus. All we know is that it's so many fish, it's breaking the net. It's so many fish that, that, that Peter and his crew are out there by themselves and they have so many fish that they look back at James and John and they say, hey, bring your boat and your people to help us because we can't get this great haul of fish into the boat. And so James and John come with their boat, and together, however they get the fish out, they bring all the fish into the boats. And then it says there's so many fish that the boats are about to sink. Well, when I was studying this this week, that really got me to thinking. That's kind of silly, isn't it? But I got to looking up fishing boats in the first century because I wanted to know how much they would hold. I want to know how, you know, what kind of fishing boats were there in the first century. I won't tell you all the different kinds of boats I found, but here's the gist of it. There's pictures, by the way, of boats that they've dug up around the Sea of Galilee, so this isn't just somebody shooting in the dark. They actually have some science behind this. They gave basic lengths of boats and how wide they were and how many men, and basically four to six men could be in the boat to work the nets and yada, 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 okay? At the end of the day, they said that these boats, typically ones like, like Peter would have had or like James and John would have had, could hold about a half a ton of fish, about 1,000 pounds, okay, if, if there's men in the boat and then the fish are in the boat. Well, I got to thinking about that. Let's just say that that's right, okay, that, that the boat could hold a half a ton of fish. And so if both of these boats are about to sink, that means it's more than they can hold. It means that it's exceeded the capacity of the boat. So Jesus in one cast, after they fished all night and couldn't catch nothing, Jesus in one cast had these guys catch more fish than their boats can hold. And let's just say on the conservative side, they caught over 2,000 pounds of fish in one cast. Now here's another thing that got me thinking. You say, Pastor, you're thinking too much. Well, I got to thinking about this. They're in the fishing business, right? What do fishermen do that are in the fishing business? They sell fish. Right? They take them fish back to the shore, and they sell it to people to market. And I don't know how many fish they were used to catching after fishing all night. I bet it wasn't 2,000 pounds worth. Just guessing. I bet they didn't catch enough fish every night to overload their boats. Or, or Peter had been living in the big house up on the hill, right? I'm saying not only did God, did God give them this big, big haul of fish as a demonstration of who he is, but think of the financial boom for them and their business. They're going to haul 2,000-plus pounds of fish back to the beach and tell the market, hey, man, we got it. We, you need to break out your piggy bank because we got some fish. 
So God blessed them. I mean, in this, in this instance, the blessing is tremendous that God would uh, do this for them, increase them, give them this great haul of fish. And the result of the catch was amazement. You say, well, these fishermen were amazed. Yes, they were. You know why? Because they fished that lake every day. And they had never seen anything like that before. Ever in their life. Peter and James and John had never seen anything like that. And so they were amazed. Now think about the impact they were doing this. First on Peter. In the middle of that boat, full of fish up to the, up to the gunnels, he looks at Jesus and falls down on his knees in the middle of them fish and says, Lord, I'm a sinful man. I don't even deserve to be in your presence. Now, why would Peter do that? Oh, because it was just Peter a few minutes ago who was going, this is the dumbest thing I ever heard, to go out here in the middle of the day in the deep part of the lake and throw that net over after I've been fishing all night. Jesus, don't you know who I am? I'm a professional fisherman, and if I couldn't catch any fish last night, we sure ain't catching none out here in the middle of the lake. I bet you thoughts like that was running all through his head. Peter looked at Jesus and looked at them fish and said, oh, am I a sinful man? Can I say this? When we see who Jesus is in the word of God, it'll put us on our knees. When we understand who Jesus is and who we are, it'll break your heart. And we'll say the same thing, Lord, I am a sinful man. Well, what was the effect on the others here? The other men were just as amazed, James and John. And they were reminded of Jesus' dominion over all creation. Again, it doesn't matter if Jesus just knew where the shoal of fish was at or if he commanded them to come there. It doesn't matter because he's God and he knows. And those men were amazed at what Jesus did. And then finally, let's close with this. In this one event to call Peter to be the fisher of men, Jesus painted a picture of the entire church age. You see, the gospel, when we share the gospel, we're casting the net, right? And when we share the gospel throughout the church age, Jesus gives us the haul of fish, if you would. Jesus is the one who, who draws people. And, and, and for 2,021 years now, the church has been casting the net of the gospel, and Jesus has been again, gathering in, if you will, the fish, those people who are saved and putting them into his kingdom. And what's the church's job till Jesus comes back? Keep casting the net. Keep going out there and sharing the gospel. That's why Jesus said to Peter, Peter, don't worry about these fish because I'm going to make you a fisher of men. I'm going to make you one who takes the gospel net and, and hauls them in for the kingdom's sake. Well, this is good stuff. I would say that as Peter got a good vision of who Jesus is and it drove him to his knees in the confession of his sin, so likewise we should respond to what we know about Jesus. If you're here tonight or you're watching online, Jesus Christ is the Lord of all. And listen, Jesus loves you and he wants to save you. If you've never prayed to receive Christ, if you've never confessed your sin, you need Jesus tonight. You need him wherever you're at online. You need him. Would you pray to receive Christ tonight? Would you confess your sin? Ask Jesus to forgive you and save you. He'll bring you into the kingdom. He'll make you his own. Would you pray tonight? Let's pray together. Thank you, Father, for this passage, for the calling of Peter into the ministry as a disciple. God, thank you for what it teaches us about this lake and this fishing event for Peter, Lord, and what it teaches us about who you are. 
God, help us to be busy in our life in the circle in which we run to share the gospel with people, to invite them to come, to befriend them, Lord, to share with them, to encourage them, and to bring them under the knowledge of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Father, bless your people. Bless the church tonight. Bless the fellowship, Lord, that you be honored in. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand as we sing. If I can pray with you, I'll be right down front here. door but before we go let me say this you all um, do this pastor appreciation every year and I want to tell you that Sherry and I appreciate it I don't know how you say that we appreciate that you appreciate it okay Um, this is the best I know I've been here since the church began and the bills come on staff this is the best place to serve that I know of I mean in this church and um, we we wouldn't want to be anywhere else And and I thank you that you love Jesus and that you that you care about God's word. And uh, Sherry and I appreciate so much the privilege to be here. And so I want to say thank you to you before you say thank you to me over there, okay? All right, Jim, go ahead. Amen. Let's bless this food tonight. God, we thank you for tonight. Thank you for uh, just the house of the Lord and for how many things uh, we see you moving in our midst. God, thank you for uh, these refreshments. And thank you for Pastor Bill and Pastor Ball and for uh, everything that they do and their passion and drive for Oakleaf Baptist Church in this community.